Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts. Hello and welcome to the December edition of the EVJ Podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today we have two fantastic guests. The first is Yvette Nout-Lomas to discuss surgical stabilisation of the cervical spine. And following, Sherry Johnson will talk us through the longitudinal pattern of SDFT tendon healing. Yvette Nout-Lomas is an Associate Professor in the Department of Clinical Science and an Equine Internal Medicine Specialist at Colorado State University. Yvette will be discussing the recent paper titled Outcomes After Cervical Vertebral Interbody Fusion Using an Interbody Fusion Device and Polyaxial Pedicle Screw and Rod Construct in 10 Horses between 2015 and 2019. Yvette, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your recent paper in EVJ. You've joined us to discuss a novel surgical technique to stabilise cervical vertebrae, and this is in cases of cervical vertebral compressive myelopathy. So could you start us off by giving us a little background about this disease? Sure. Thank you, Ryanan, for inviting me to do this podcast. It's really exciting for me to see this work Um, be um, mentioned and hopefully used um, across the world. Um, CVCM or Wobbler syndrome is a syndrome in which the vertebral canal of the cervical spine, so the neck, is too narrow at some point, maybe one point, maybe more points, and thereby compressing, causing spinal cord compression. It's the spinal cord compression that we then see clinically as horses become ataxic, so they lose their coordination, they become incoordinated, they become dysmetric, whereby they um, have a, an odd range of movement in the legs, and they can become weak following this spinal cord compression. Okay, so what surgical techniques are currently available? Um, which is the most commonly used and how successful are they? So the most commonly utilized technique currently uses curve-cut cylinders, also known as a modified Bagby basket, which is um, very highly used, for example, at Root and Riddle. Um, And um, success rates with this device are somewhere between 65 and 70% of horses that show improvement following fusion of the neck using this technique. There are some other techniques that have been used in the past, including locking compression plates and dorsal laminectomies, but neither of those um, are very much utilized, and they both have some disadvantages compared to the uh, Bagby or modified Bagby basket or the curve cut cylinder. So how does um, the technique you describe in this paper differ from these other techniques? Um, And what did your study aim to investigate? Yeah, so the the biggest thing, um, Dr. Easley, Dr. Jeremiah Easley, who is the surgeon who has been exploring this method in other species, including sheep, um, but the biggest concern he had with regards to the curve cut cylinder is that that type of a fusion really um, provides great fusion in compression, but not in tension of the neck. So he was looking to find um, a way to provide that stabilization more rapidly and completely to occur both in compression and tension. Um, And that's why he developed this um, new construct that uses pedicle screws and connecting rods 
in, that are inserted in the neck in combination with an interbody fusion device. Um, and our aim for the study was really to find out if our horses would um, show more rapid improvement in their neurologic signs, and also to find out if we would have fewer fatalities using this technique. Um, because one of the big differences between the two techniques surgically is that the amount of bone left with this technique that we have used is much bigger than with the curve cut cylinder technique. Um, and so the chance of having fatal complications um, that are mostly related to fracturing the neck and the ventral spinal canal um, should be smaller with the technique that we are using in this study. So you managed to include 10 horses in the, in the study. What were your inclusion criteria? Uh, what was their signalment and clinical presentation? Yeah, the 10 horses that we included in this study ha all had clinical signs suggestive of spinal cord um, compression. And we did a myelogram, a cervical myelogram on all 10 horses to confirm the presence of spinal cord, st uh, spinal cord compression at one or multiple sites. Um, most of these horses were relatively young, um, but a few were older too. Um, Okay, and you mentioned using um, myelography. Was there any other way you diagnosed CVCM in these horses? No, that is really what we use to diagnose CVCM in these horses. We did take plain x-rays on admission to um, determine, you know, how, how likely they were to be um, wobblers or horses with CVCM. Um, but they all had a myelogram to confirm the, di the diagnosis and how many sites might need to be fused. And could you give us an overview of the surgical technique? You've given us a few um, details already, but what was the, the surgical approach? Yeah, um, the surgical approach is through the, a ventral midline incision on in the neck. Um, and um, the one of the big important things to um, to do very carefully during the surgery is the dissection and um, approach to the vertebral column. Um, there are some big arteries, veins, and nerves, including the sympathetic chain, that run along the neck there. Um, and so one of the uh, problems that, one of the complications we sometimes have in these horses is that they develop laryngeal hemiplegia um, from um, secondary essentially to the dissection along the neck. So that dissection needs to happen very um, carefully. And then we use um, a combination of x-rays and fluoroscopy to identify the different disc spaces and vertebral bodies to make sure that we're operating on the correct one. Um, and then um, the, um, uh, we use a drill to um, open a disc space to accommodate um, a fusion device or create some level of disc damage to promote fusion of the neck joint. And then that is um, stabilized by inserting the um, construct, construct that includes the, the rods and the screws. Okay. And these are, um, and these are long titanium self-tapping pedicle screws. And how did you find the horses coped post-operatively? What was their general post-operative care plan? Um, the general plan includes the administration of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, 
um, a period of antibiotics. Um, and then it's case dependent with regards to whether they would need any other pain medications, um, where the hay, for example, is hung. Um, initially, we would hang it kind of at head height so that they wouldn't have to use their neck. But many horses that are relatively comfortable will reach down to the floor soon post-operatively already. Um, but that is something that's taken into account. Um, and then um, oftentimes we have these horses on stall rest or some level of confinement for about 30 days um, before we would um, um, uh, before before we would allow for any um, hand walking or more um, use. How did they respond to the cervical stabilization? You, I think you assess them urologically, preoperatively, and postoperatively, and up to a year after, I believe. Did you see uh, quite a difference? Yes, it is. Very, it was very variable. So in some horses, we saw a marked improvement. One of these cases came in as a grade four out of five ataxic and improved to grade one um, out of five ataxic. So a huge level of improvement. And we had others that did not improve um, from the neurologic standpoint, but the owners actually reported um, improvement of neck function and comfort. Um, and they attributed the horse's happiness to the surgery and to their improved neck use. And then we had um, two horses that um, were euthanized, one of which did not show any improvement and probably had a, um, another compressive injury more distal to where we had operated. Um, so we had operated that horse at C6, C7, and he um, probably also was compressed at C7-T1. Um, so that horse was euthanized um, about a month after surgery because he was um, um, unable to get up anymore. How rapidly were you seeing this improvement? Yeah, the horses that, were, that improved, some of them showed improvement um, within the month after surgery, including the horse I was just describing. Um, and the other horses showed improvement um, within about six months um, um, after surgery, and certainly by a year. Um, and the year mark is kind of what we used in this particular paper. Um, and we our, um, mar our level of improvement is actually similar to what has been described for the um, modified Bagby basket. So sitting also at about 65% of horses that showed improvement in the neurologic function. Um, over time. That's great. Um, what type and incidence of short-term complications arose after surgery? Yeah, so some of the short-term complications that we um, saw was the aforementioned um, hemiplegia, laryngeal hemiplegia. Um, and in the one case in which we had that, um, that actually became a fatal complication because the horse developed it in, on, on both sides. Um, we also had a horse that developed Horner's syndrome, um, which also is evidence of some damage to the uh, nerves in the neck. We've had a horse that developed um, dysphagia, um, azotemia, and hives, and that was actually the same horse. Um, other short-term complications that we, we've seen um, include seroma formation, which is pretty common um, in these uh, neck incisions because there's a lot of dead space. Um, and we've had horses develop fevers, um, um, 
and um, some other uh, post-surgical inflammation. Um, but the short-term complications in general um, were, um, were mostly manageable. And how about long-term complications? Did you see any of them experience any longer-term effects? We did see some longer-term complications. Um, we had one horse that, um, um, that was euthanized, um, the one I, I mentioned earlier, that was mo more than likely compressed at C71. Unfortunately, we did not get a necropsy on that horse um, because he was out of state and um, he couldn't get up anymore, so they euthanized him um, on the farm. Um, but then we also had two horses that had suspect implant infections and screw breakage. Um, one of them even had a non-displaced fracture um, at C5. Um, but both of these horses, there were two horses in which we saw these um, changes. Both of these horses recovered uneventfully. One horse required some um, a period of um, antibiotic treatment because we suspect that that a uh, horse did have an um, in infection based on neck pain and, um, and um, uh, abnormalities on blood work. Um, and in the other horse, screw breakage was noted incidentally on a recheck examination um, over a year um, after, um, after surgery. Um, and, and both horses, like I said, continue to do well um, and improve clinically. You also included a questionnaire for the owners um, in this study. How did they feel overall about this procedure? Yeah, we did. Um, and that was really something that I was personally interested in, um, also to as a, as a guide to use to um, offer this procedure to other clients. Um, two, we ended up getting questionnaires back on eight of the 10 horses, so not on the two that were euthanized early on. Um, and all eight um, owners were very, um, very encouraged about what they've see, that what they saw on their horse, um, and all eight owners were happy that they had moved forward and done this procedure. Um, even the ones um, that of, of which the horses had not really responded favorably, in my opinion, from the neurologic perspective, those owners were happy that they had done this because um, they felt that their horse was more comfortable. So will you continue to favor this technique over the other surgical techniques you described? And do you have any plans for some bigger studies? I do think that this surgical technique um, has a lot of potential, um, especially with regards to um, it probably being more, um, more doable from the surgical perspe perspective um, and probably also from the perspective of limiting any type of fatal complications. Um, the downside of our technique, though, is that it requires a little bit more space um, on the ventral aspect of the vertebral column, um, which makes the technique difficult or almost impossible to apply at low lesions. So C7-T1, um, we cannot get there with this particular technique, whereas the modified Bagby basket can be placed there because it utilizes less surface. Um, so I think there are some pros and cons on in from either of these um, techniques. But what I really like about this, the technique that we used here is that we leave more bone, making it less likely that the horse suffers um, a fatal neck fracture, uh, for example, during recovery from the surgery or, or in surgery. Now, I will say that one of the limitations of our study is that we've only looked at a few horses. 
whereas the modified Bagby basket, of course, has been utilized for years in high volume. Um, and so we there is a lot of data um, from from those horses. Um, and so to I think we, we will need to um, do a lot more horses to determine how safe this procedure indeed is. Well, we look forward forward to reading reading those studies. Uh, finally, do you have an overall take home message for us? Um, yes, I think that um, one of the take home messages for me. Um, as an internal medicine person, is really to advocate for horses that have this condition um, and that there is an option for owners to help their horses if they so choose. Um, Although the outcome is often um, unknown and we still are having, we still have difficulties identifying horses that will uh, have successful outcomes and horses that are less likely to have successful outcomes, um, the chance that we can offer to these owners and horses, I think, um, is, is important to understand. Um, and it's, I think it's a great option for, for owners who do want to um, um, give their horse uh, the best chance they can. Well, great. Thank you, Yvette, for taking time out of your day to talk to us on this topic. Absolutely. Thank you again for your interest. And I hope that um, that your listeners will enjoy this uh, podcast. Thank you. Sherry Johnson is a PhD candidate at Colorado State University and a partner of Equine Sports Medicine and Rehab in Whitesboro, Texas. Sherry's joined us to talk about her recent paper titled Longitudinal Tendon Healing Assessed with Multimodality Advanced Imaging and Tissue Analysis. Sherry, thank you so much for finding some time to um, come and talk about your study on EVJ. We're yeah, thank start... you for having me. So this study concentrates on injury of the superficial digital flex tendon. What type of difficulties do clinicians face when treating and managing these injuries? I think as, um, you know, equine sports medicine clinicians, the biggest frustration with SDFT injuries is their um, chronic re-injury rates. So we also struggling struggle with monitoring them and, and deciding that perfect time of, oh, the tendon is strong enough, healed enough in order to go back to work or, you know, move to this next level of exercise intensity. Um, so we struggle in monitoring. I don't think we struggle in diagnosing the injury itself, but we do struggle in the longitudinal monitoring of that tendon and its relation to the biomechanical or physiologic properties. Um, and then we all struggle with re-injury rates. So I think we've all had that case that, um, you know, we've lost sleep at night over thinking that it was healed and everything was good only to find out that the horse goes out and, and re-injures. Um, so they're really frustrating injuries um, in that regard. Yeah, I can I can definitely agree with that. Um, so what type of imaging modalities are routinely used and what can they tell us about lesion severity and the healing process? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously the most widespread imaging modality to assess superficial digital flexor tendon injuries is obviously the grayscale ultrasound. Um, Stall side, non-invasive, almost every clinician has access to it. Um, But as we're getting more and more evolved on the sports medicine side of things, I would say MRI, you know, has quickly become our um, second most frequently used modality to assess tendon injuries. 
obviously by far and away, um, DDFT injuries within the foot, um, tendon sheath, that kind of thing, highly utilized, um, you know, and, and maybe not um, quite as many clinicians are using MRI to assess SDFT injuries, um, but this study was, was a nice window into that realm as well. Um, and then you have the wildcard, you know, CT that, you know, certainly clinically has not really made um, their grand entrance into clinical utilization to assess these types of tendon injuries. But um, from a research perspective, adds an interesting um, component to the array of imaging modalities that we have access to. So what did this research aim to study in particular and what did you hypothesize? So this study was really aimed at evaluating how all of the imaging modalities work together in conjunction with, um, you know, endpoint histopathologic, biochemical, and also biomechanical parameters. So we wanted um, to see in terms of surgically induced tendon injuries within the SDFT, um, how all of these imaging modalities correlated to each other. And what did that mean in terms of endpoint or long-term healing, long-term, you know, tissue level type of properties. So this was a study that was a huge undertaking um, by a large amount of people. Um, certainly I'm on the podcast today, but there's so many people that were helpful and involved with this study um, from its genesis all the way through until its publication. So um, was obviously a massive undertaking. Um, but there hadn't been a study that was so longitudinal in nature, right, that had looked specifically at surgically induced tendon lesions um, with the motivation of how do we best monitor them, what can those properties tell us about long-term um, effects, that kind of thing. So that was really our motivation in, in doing this study is like how do, how do all the imaging modalities orchestrate together? Yeah, it certainly sounds like an extensive um, project. So it was a prospective controlled experiment. And as you say in your paper, there's extensive materials and methods that spanned uh, 12 months. Could you summarize for us um, the population you used and then what surgical procedure was undertaken? Yeah, so um, this was a pretty homogenous group of horses um, that we had. We had eight horses total um, with bilateral SDFT injuries um, surgically induced into the extrathecal or that mid-metacarpal region, um, basically to simulate as much as we can, um, you know, that type of um, strain injury to the SDFT. I will, you know, grease the skids and say that certainly no experimental model perfectly mimics clinical disease. And we, that is an acknowledged limitation of this study, right? Of, you know, you can either be in the surgical model band camp or the collagenase model band camp or the clinical disease model. Um, but this was, you know, our our goal was to create homogenous lesions that could be experimentally studied, realizing that they aren't, you know, perfect, perfectly analogous to the clinical scenario. Um, and then we monitored these horses over a full year um, and imaged them at the various time points that are outlined in the study. Uh, we did not only just regular standard phase CT, but we did contrast enhance CT similar to the Davis group that does, you know, the arterial venous delayed phases within CT itself. Um, we did MRI evaluation and then also ultrasound as well. 
And then at the 12 month time point, all of the horses were humanely euthanized and we collected those tendons to look at a whole battery of histopathologic analysis, biochemical analysis, um, and biomechanics. So the method section, if you make it through the method section on this paper, I think you, you deserve an award. <laughs> there's, a nice, there's a nice timeline, though. So what were the time points of your um, imaging acquisition? So our imaging acquisition, um, we basically started with, um, let me just pull it up here so I don't, I don't misspeak. So lesion induction at the zero time point. Um, and then we looked at the horses, both from a clinical perspective, MRI, CT, and ultrasound at two weeks, one month, two months, four, six, nine, and 12 months in relation to lesion induction. So um, serial imaging at its finest, certainly, um, throughout yeah, this 12-month time point. Very comprehensive. Um, and you also mentioned about your biomechanical testing with your histological and biochemical analysis. What exactly were you investigating with these aspects? We wanted to look at the actual um, you know, cellular tissue level properties of the tendons and how they healed. And if there was one particular um, imaging characteristic that was related to superior healing, and there's been so much interest around the vascularity of tendon lesions and persistent vascularization or lack of vascularization and how that correlates to the type of healing that we're appreciating. Um, that was really um, our goal for including that level of histologic and biochemical, biomechanical analysis. So, you know, kind of back backtracking our steps a little bit, right? Like if we had a group of tendons that healed um, superior to the rest, okay, well, what were their imaging characteristics? Was there anything that we could pinpoint along the way from an imaging perspective that would um, help us figure out, you know, how we can detect the, the, better, um, the better healers? So that's really, you know, why we did that. Okay, so that leads us nicely on to um, the results of your study. When you were analysing your histology and immuno, immunohistochemical and biochemical outcomes, what, what did you find? I think the most interesting thing and also the one of the most surprising thing about this studies about this study was um, the relationship of standard phase CT isoattenuation and the level of agrican. Um, in that tendon specifically. Um, so basically, uh, you know, as the tendon became less visible on the standard phase, so no contrast on that CT image, as that lesion uh, became isoattenuating or less visible, the amount of agrican in that tendon increased. And um, for the clinicians listening to this podcast that are like, well, what's agrican and why do we care about it? Well, agrican is um, a scar tissue protein and the presence of agrican has been demonstrated on the human side to be um, significantly inferior in terms of healing. So the more agrican you have in a tendon, um, as far as scar tissue formation, the worse that it is um, in biomechanical fortitude and strength. So the goal is to have less agrican in a tendon. So as we imaged these tendons um, on CT, they became, you know, the lesion became, quote, smaller, but the level of agrican in that tendon actually increased, um, which is a total paradigm shift, right? We, as clinicians, always think like, oh, the less 
visible lesion means it's getting smaller and that must automatically indicate healing. And I think what I learned about this study was all that indicates is just that there's scar tissue deposition and necessarily is that a good thing or not. Um, and obviously we're not CTing all of these limbs, um, but that was kind of a wake up call to me of, of, is this a flaw in how we're detecting tendon injuries um, and how we're deciding when they're strong enough to go back to work? So what, what time point were you finding isoattenuation between the lesion and the tendon? It was variable. I don't think any of them were isoattenuating before um, the two to four month time period. Um, but as the tendon, I think if I remember correctly, you know, around four months post lesion induction was really when they started, some of them um, started to be more and more isoattenuating. Um, but they were really quite varied. I mean, they didn't fall into like a, a perfect box. And I think the really interesting thing about the CT and adding the contrast into this study, right, is all of this interest around the vascularity. So you have, you know, people who think that persistent vascularity is a bad thing. You have people that think no vascularity is a bad thing. Um, and the reality, the humbling thing was that the tendons in this study, in terms of vascularization, they did whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted in terms of vessel formation. Um, there really was no reliable method to their madness. And if you think that we've distilled it down as much as we can to homogeneously creating tendon injury, which there's no way to know that we for sure did that, but, you know, we certainly tried, um, you know, then why, why wasn't that the case? Um, and I, you know, I always want to be the, the researcher that has some amazing breakthrough, right? But the reality is that we didn't. Um, the, the vascularity in this study was quite unpredictable. When you compared the advanced imaging modalities to each other, what did you find with respect to lesion progression there? Yeah, so again, interesting, lesion size um, was always largest and most visible on the standard-based CT evaluation, um, then followed by MRI, and then lastly, ultrasound. So I think my big biggest takeaway as a practicing veterinarian was, okay, well, I find a grayscale tendon injury you know, on, on just regular ultrasound, I can say reliably that that lesion is actually much larger than what I can see on my ultrasound. So I think that was one of the biggest takeaways for me was, you know, it may look kind of small on the ultrasound and maybe doesn't seem like a big deal, but it's, it's in actuality, probably much larger than what I can detect. Going back to, um, you discussing the positive correlation between tendon isoattenuation on plain CT and agrican deposition. Um, and you thought that this was due to increased scar tissue. Agrican produces scar tissue. Um, so therefore, suboptimal biomechanical strength of the tendon. This obviously is tricky when um, trying to work out what to do in a clinical scenario. Do you have any recommendations on how to interpret this situation in clinical cases? Because, as you say, we usually say reduced lesion visualization is a good thing and is interpreted yeah. usually as positive lesion progression. Yeah, I think that is such a tough question, <laughs> um, you know, and, and I wish I had an answer for you because I think we as as practicing veterinarians, right, you're 
the toolbox that you have available that's non-invasive stall side modalities to longitudinally monitor these tendon lesions is obviously ultrasound. And we all monitor them and say, look, the lesion's getting smaller in cross-sectional area compared to the previous exam. Um, so, you know, checks that box, things are looking better, let's, let's forge on. And maybe we need to rethink that. Maybe that the lesion, you know, quote, going away on the ultrasound um, doesn't just indicate that there's rap more rapid um, scar tissue formation or scar tissue deposition. And maybe that's ultimately how our screening process has been flawed, you know, of in terms of getting these major re-injury rates. So I don't have an answer of, of like, when is the perfect time and how do you know? I struggle with it myself every single day. Um, I think the importance of the clinical exam, sensitivity to palpation, what level of work the horse is in now or at that time in terms of eccentric loading, um, and then ultimately what the long-term goal is for that horse, um, you know, are still the, the major key players. But even if I have a horse that, you know, I'm rehabbing for an SDFT lesion and it looks significantly better on the ultrasound, I'm still hesitant to say, yeah, let's flog on. Let's, you know, go back to, um, you know, the work we were doing before. I think it's just a really dicey situation still. And you found that um, T2-weighted signal hyperintensity on MRI was present within lesions until up to... In 12 months which is quite a long time yeah how did yeah. you um, interpret this um, what do you think was going on in the lesion and how does this correlate or compare to what we see in ddft lesions so i i think this is a great question it was certainly a head scratcher for me because and you can obviously speak to the radiologists um, much more accurately than i can as just being a sports medicine clinician but um, the T2 sequence, to my knowledge, was always thought of as a sequence that indicated acute or active lesion um, progression. Um, and so the fact that we saw T2 hyperintensity all the way out to 12 months in almost 40% of the tendons in this study was very surprising um, to our entire research group. I think we all kind of stood back at that. Um, so I don't think that we can necessarily think about the T2 as being you know, just acute, just active anymore. I think we've got to broaden our lens just a little bit. Um, and in terms of the DDFT, I, I think that's a really interesting question. I don't know that I'm the most qualified person to answer that, um, you know, but it's my, my general thought that, you know, at least like in terms of DDFT within the foot type of thing, the, the T2 and the stir and the orchestration of hyperintensity with those two um, signals has been really paramount to determining how active or acute um, those types of injuries are. Mm. And you also found that increased um, proton density, fat-saturated hyperintensity was also linked to hypocellularity. So increased signal was linked to hypocellularity. It's been classically linked to acute injury and increased fluid content. So what, what can explain the difference between what you found and what was thought? Um, you know, I think in general, we want tendons to be hypocellular. So um, having a tendon that's hypercellular, hypercellular 
um, you know, collagen disorganization, all of those types of things. Those are like classic tendon injury um, signs. And specifically along the dorsomedial aspect of our tendons, we noticed that there was um, less cellular density, um, meaning that those all of the tendons along that specific margin seemed to have superior cellular properties, um, which I think was an interesting finding. Um, and then, you know, the hyperintensity on the PDFS sequence at 12 months post-lesion induction um, was also associated with hypocellularity, which I have absolutely, not absolutely no idea, but that was definitely um, a left field kind of finding um, that you know, our group struggled to explain why that would be the case. Um, because the PDFS has been classically associated with acute tendon injury and therefore increased fluid content. So um, it's possible that we just caught these tendons at a very chronic stage of healing and that the tendinous tissue was just overall less fluid sensitive. Um, but I certainly don't know. I don't have a concrete answer there. Okay. Um, moving on to um, the contrast-enhanced imaging. You mentioned that, unfortunately, you didn't find any correlation between contrast-enhanced CT, contrast-enhanced MRI, and what was going on within the tendon. So after this study, um, will your group continue to use contrast-enhanced imaging in clinical cases? And if so, how do you think the findings will affect your interpretation of, of tendon healing? Yeah, I think that I'm not definitely not ready to give up on the vascularity stuff. Um, and whether I continue to monitor vascularity with, you know, Doppler ultrasound or um, something more invasive like, you know, the contrast CT or the contrast MRI, which I'm not currently um, clinically using on my cases, you know, day in, day out. Um, but I think for me, like the, the longitudinal the temporal changes in vascularity seem to be relatively more important to me than, um, than anything else. So like, I think it's okay if you have a, a tendon that is relatively avascular, doesn't have a whole lot of vascularity to it, but my ear, ears do perk up when then suddenly I notice an increase in vascularity to that tendon. And the same could be true for the opposite scenario, right? Like if we had a somewhat vascular tendon that all of a sudden, um, becomes not vascular at all. Like, why do you have those shifts and what does that mean? Um, so I'm certainly, you know, not devaluing the role of vascularization at all, but I don't know that we fully understand what it means yet, other than it probably means something. We just haven't um, completely gotten to the bottom of it yet. Well, finally, what would your take-home message from all this research be for clinicians trying to manage these lesions? I think my takeaway as a practicing veterinarian was when I find a lesion on ultrasound, it's it's much bigger than what I realize. Um, so proceed with caution. <laughs> and that's not certainly like a warm, fuzzy uh, message to leave you all on. Um, but honestly, I think that ultrasound way underestimates the size of the actual lesion. So I think if I learned, you know, one thing from this study, it certainly was that. So be more cautious. <laughs> yeah, just, just be scared of everything. Be scared of all tendon, tendon injuries, yeah. 
Oh, Sherry, thank you very much for talking us through this this extensive research. And it certainly yeah, sounds like me. it's taken a, a long time. Um, yes. Yeah, we appreciate it. A slice of my soul in this paper, for sure. <laughs> Thanks very much. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for joining us and have a great Christmas. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash evj.